Without further ado, Shlomit, um, thank you for coming. She's going to be speaking on delegation of powers and authority in international criminal law. So, um, the start with qualification. I'm not an expert in international law, but in recent years I've had growing interest. Um, I'm coming from criminal law, and I have a growing interest in the area of international law and international criminal law. And so the question I want to ask today is a question that I think is um, it, it, it's an important question that keeps on coming up um, in the context of international criminal law. And very often, defendants that are being tried by international tribunals challenge the authority of the court, demanding to know by what right does the court or the tribunal judge them. Now, in part, this is a question, a legal question, that we can always say, you know, go to the Rome Statute, you'll find how we, we got our jurisdiction. But in part, this is a moral question, and it is a very important one. And in this paper, I'm trying to answer this challenge. Now, the challenge is based on the traditional position according to which it is the states and political communities that have the power and legitimacy to punish wrongdoers using criminal law. It is therefore necessary to explain why then can international courts and criminal or how can they gain the authority to judge people for certain crimes. Since many international courts were created by agreement of states and treaties, it is often assumed that the authority of those courts is grounded on delegation of powers by the states to the international court or tribunal. However, David Luban um, argues that the authority of international courts cannot be based on delegation of powers. Therefore, it must be based instead on the idea of universal jurisdiction which he justifies by reason of the fairness of the court. That is, its ability to ensure high-quality justice. Lubin, I will argue, is wrong on both accounts. Authority cannot simply based on the ability to provide high-quality justice, and there is no difficulty in justifying the authority of the courts on the, basi on the basis of delegation of powers by states as a matter of principle. Nevertheless, I think that his account is an important starting point because the quality of justice of international courts provides the reason or a reason which may enable states to delegate power to those courts in certain circumstances. In essence, what I will try to do is I think there is no problem with delegation of power as a basis um, for, for the authority of the court. And what I will try to look at is all those who argued against the delegation of a court and show why there is really all their arguments are, are flawed. At the second part of this uh, paper, I use the International Criminal Court, the ICC, as a case study, demonstrating how the authority of the court can be based on delegation of powers. The ICC is a good representative not only because it is a permanent court, it's the latest development um, in, in the area of international application of international criminal law, but also because it gains jurisdiction both from direct agreement from states and from referrals from the Security Council. Therefore, if I can show that delegation of powers can, be ground, can ground the authority of the court, impliedly, it may also justify the authority of a wide range of international courts and tribunals, whether they are established by treaties or by the Security Council. I should also say, it's not that I'm saying that there is no other basis to, to establish authority. I'm just trying to argue that I think that the, what seems to be an obvious um, basis, delegation of power, is also a good basis for um, the authority of the court. 
So traditionally, it is the states as political communities that have the power and legitimacy to punish the wrongdoer using criminal law. Consequently, all four principles that govern jurisdiction of states' authority require some connection between the state and the crime. The principle of territoriality looks at the connection between the, geograph the geographic location of the crime and the state. The principle of active nationality concentrates on the connection between the wrongdoer and the state of his or her nationality. The principle of passive nationality looks at the relationship between the victim and the state of his or her nationality. And the protective principle gives states jurisdiction over crimes committed against governmental or state interest, be it espionage or tax fraud or money counterfeiting of their state currency. However, alongside domestic criminal law, the last century has seen the development of international criminal law. And this development involves two types of changes to the domestic-based authority. The first is a widening of jurisdictions of state to include, to include offenses that are not connected to the state in accordance with one of the four principles. This extension is either justified by treaties or when it comes to some heinous crimes by reference to universal jurisdiction. The second change, whose origin dates back to the end of World War II, is the development of international tribunals that have authority to judge certain crimes. The most recent development in this front is the creation of a permanent tribunal, the International Criminal Court. Currently, the court judges four offenses, and only four offenses. Um, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and torture. And in the near future, a fifth offense, the offense, the crime of aggression, will also be added to the list, or hopefully will be added to the list of tribal offenses. Though both areas of development of international criminal law beg the same question, right? by what right do those courts or tribunals judge us, I think they deserve separate discussion, and in this discussion I will only concentrate on the international courts and tribunals. Um, I also think that there is an interplay, an interrelation between those two, um, those two questions, inevitably. So, by what what, so on what moral ground can international tribunals ground their authority and legitimacy? David Luban is one of the very few to offer an answer to this question. And although I disagree with him, I think his account is an instructive one. He develops a fairness-based justification for what he terms pure international criminal law, which in fact are those four offenses we were talking about. His argument is developed in two stages. First, he argues that the basis for the legitimacy of international tribunals in general, and the ICC in particular, must be grounded on the idea of universal jurisdiction. Although he recognizes that the ICC operates on a theory of delegated jurisdiction, whereby state parties, um, state parties transfer to the ICC their own territorial or nationality-based jurisdiction over pure international crimes, he argues that, and I'm quoting, it is far from obvious that criminal jurisdiction is something a state can legitimately delegate to whoever it chooses. If it can delegate criminal jurisdiction to the ICC, then why not to the Kansas City dog catcher, the World Chess Federation, or the Rolling Stones? I'm all for <laughs> Rolling Stones. Thus, a more stable basis is needed, and this could be found, according to Luban, um, in the idea of universal jurisdiction. <coughs> 
In the second stage, Lubin goes on to justify universal jurisdiction on what he terms the manifest fairness of the procedures and punishment of the international court. His point is that it is the ability of these courts to provide champagne quality justice that is the grounds for the authority and legitimacy of these tribunals. I must say I've presented this paper in the States and when I said champagne quality justice I had a few hands coming up asking me is that good quality justice? Mm -hmm. So as Europeans I appreciate that you, are, you appreciate that it is, right? At least good champagne. So Lubin goes on to explain that the need to comply with the requirement of natural justice means that, and I'm quoting again, only tribunals that have some kind of internationally recognized state authorization, paradigmatically authorization by multilateral groups of states such as the UN, are likely to be able to satisfy them. Evidence must be gathered from foreign war zones by trustworthy and impartial investigators. Evidentiary chain of custody must be maintained. Defense counsel and judges recruited and paid. Defense witnesses subpoenaed across borders. Appellant penals created and staffed. Rules written, safe, humane, prison found, and long-term confinement monitored. Realistically, only states can carry these tasks. Therefore, he admits, that is ultimately why it will not do to grant criminal jurisdiction to the Rolling Stones and the World Chess Federation. How said. So even if we accept Lubin's premise that delegation of jurisdiction cannot ground the authority of the ICC, which then must be founded on the notion of universal jurisdiction, something that I will come back to later, it seems to me that Lubin is confusing two distinct issues. And this confusion is camouflaged by Lubin's use of the terminology of legitimacy to address issues of authority. His discussion involves what I think are two distinct notions of authority. The first is what I call jurisdictional authority, and the second is decisional authority. Jurisdictional authority involves the identification of the moral basis for recognizing the jurisdiction of a body. Decisional authority involves the ability to hand down an authoritative judgment. In order for a decision or a judgment to, be, to have the quality of authority, it must respond to two claims. First, that the body has jurisdictional authority, and second, that the jurisdictional authority is exercised in a fair way. Thus, jurisdictional authority is a prerequisite for decisional authority. It's one of the two conditions in order to have decisional authority. On the other hand, the recognition of jurisdictional authority is not logically dependent on the existence of fair process. Although in practice, the ability to provide fair process and thus decisional authority is an important consideration in deciding whether to recognize a jurisdictional authority of a given body. Right, so one of the things that we need to take in, to bear in mind when we think that to, to give to, to grant jurisdictional authority is the ability of that court at the end of the day to produce something that will be authoritative judgment. When Lubin argues that the ICC's legitimately, legitimacy is dependent on the court's compliance with the demands of natural justice, he is correct in so far as he is referring to legitimacy in the sense of decisional authority. For decisional authority requires the existence of fair criminal process. However, legitimacy in the sense of jurisdictional authority cannot be grounded on compliance with natural justice. Such a claim amounts to arguing that the existence of the second aspect of decisional authority is also 
the answer to the first aspect, and thus both aspects collapse into one, right? We just have the issue of fair justice. Jurisdiction cannot be gained simply by ensuring natural procedural justice. The ability to ensure, to ensure just process is insufficient to provide any domestic court jurisdiction over a person with regards to whom there is no other basis for jurisdiction. To use Duff's example, and I'm quoting, if an English court delivers champagne quality, good champagne quality, due process, and Polish courts did not, this would not give an English court the right to try a Polish thief for theft committed in Poland. Nor can such claims to procedural propriety give international courts an authority they would otherwise lick. A defendant's challenge by what right do you try me must be answer for a trial to be legitimate in the sense of decisional authority. The answer our procedures respect the demands of natural justice is not an answer to this challenge. But more importantly, I'm not convinced by Lubin's first claim that there is a problem with the idea that states can delegate their jurisdiction to international tribunals. His reasoning, which I think reflects the U.S. position, seems to be that if we allow states to delegate their jurisdiction to international tribunals, then what is there to stop states from delegating their powers to clearly inappropriate bodies such as the World Chess Federation or the Rolling Stones? Lubin compares the delegation of powers to international tribunals to delegation of powers to private body. Therefore, it would be useful to examine the possible underlying claims against delegation of powers to private body and see if they are similarly applicable to international tribunals. This discussion will also help us flesh out both the special features of the international tribunals and the important role of the state in punishment. Lubin objection can thus be based on one of three or four distinct underlying claims. I will look here only at two claims. One is to look the, the role of the state as, an, as instrumental. It may be based on a Lockean view that the state are instrumental in punishing those who deserve to be punished because they are best, pla best placed to do the job. That is, it assumes that the wrongdoer deserves to be punished for retributivist or consequentialist reasons, it doesn't really matter, and claims that the states are better placed to determine what the wrongdoer justly deserves and subsequently accurately inflict that sanction on those who justly deserve it. Delegation of power to punish to private bodies who inevitably are not similarly able to make these decisions would therefore be objectionable. If this is a basis for Lubin's rejection of delegation as a basis for international tribunals jurisdiction, then it is viable only if we cannot differentiate between delegation of powers to private body and delegation of powers to public bodies such as international tribunals. Except that Lubin himself provides us with the basis for making such distinction. Only state authorized or supported tribunals, but not private body, are able to ensure fair procedures and punishment. If he is right about this, and I think he is right about this, then it appears that his objection to the delegation-based authority is removed. Moreover, I don't think that Lubin's rejection and delegation of power is really based on this kind of argument, because Lubin himself thinks that international criminal tribunals can legitimately punish wrongdoers for certain crimes, meaning that he must think that, these that at least for these offenses, international tribunals are at least as well-placed as... Um, national courts. The second argument I want to look at is uh, a state-centered justification um, 
for against delegation of powers to punish private bodies. This argument is based on the claim that states have a power to punish because, and one variation, and I'm quoting, punishment is a conventional device for the expression of attitude of resentment and indignation and of judgments of disapproval and reprobation on the part either of the punishing authority himself or those in whose name the punishment is inflicted. End of quote. Since punishment is an expression of the judgment of the community, only the state, which is a modern representative of the community, can make such representation. A different variation advanced by Duff argues that punishment is not an expressive exercise, but rather a communicative one, which involves holding the wrongdoer to account and punishing him, yet for similar reasons to the ones I've just explained, his account too requires that the state will be the one to punish. Now I tend to agree with Duff, with Duff position the trial serves two roles, holding the wrongdoer to account and punishing him. I also think that to achieve this it is essential that the state, rather than private bodies, would be in charge of the process and its execution. Nevertheless, this does not prevent delegation of jurisdiction altogether. It does not prevent delegation of jurisdiction to other public bodies, be them international tribunals or possibly tribunals of other states, to act on behalf of and condemn in the name of the state with primary jurisdiction and its community as long as they can ensure fair process and punishment. But according to this explanation specifically, the state whose primary jurisdiction must have priority as the main representative, representative of its community. Subsequently, permission to delegate jurisdiction must be limited only to instances where the state with primary jurisdiction is unable to call the wrongdoer to account itself because it's a failed state or because a wrongdoer has fled the country or where the state is unable to ensure due process because of difficulties collecting evidence, getting witnesses, or anything along these lines. In such cases, it seems wrong that the wrongdoer would gain a windfall advantage and avoid being called to account altogether. Note also that this explanation requires an agreement to be delegated to the delegation of power by the state with primary jurisdiction. So it's not you can just transfer, there has to be a clear agreement. The state who has primary jurisdiction has to give this jurisdiction to someone else when it cannot do so as a direct, immediate representative of the people. We will return to this point later. So the essence of the two arguments I looked at is that Lubin's objection is based on an assumption that recognizing the permissibility of some types of delegation, i.e. to public international tribunals, inevitably means the states are permitted to delegate jurisdiction to whomever it chooses, and such an unlimited permission to delegate jurisdiction is clearly objectionable. It is objectionable because there are private bodies to whom delegation of power to punish is clearly inappropriate. As I argued, however, none of, these of the reasons behind the objection to the delegation of powers to private bodies require the conclusion that all delegations of power a priori are prohibited. Alternatively, the objection to the delegation of jurisdiction may be masking a different fear. That the body to whom the jurisdiction is, delegating, is delegated may be incapable or unwilling to act justly. This would also explain why Lubin argues that the ability to produce champagne-quality justice 
is so important for the tribunal's legitimacy. But if this is a real fear, then the solution is found not in a prohibition of delegation of power altogether, but rather with ensuring that powers are delegated only to bodies that uphold natural justice. Put another way, the problem is not with jurisdictional authority per se, but rather with decisional authority, or the second aspect in order to achieve decisional authority, the fair process. Therefore, the solution does not have to exclude the possibility of recognizing jurisdictional authority altogether. Rather, it has to revolve around the, an assurance that it is recognized only where the body is capable of ensuring the fair process and subsequently decisional authority. Now, therefore, there is no reason as a matter of principle that prevents states from delegating their power to punish. States are thus permitted to delegate power to other national as well as international tribunals. The decision whether power should be delegated is one to be taken by the state whose primary jurisdiction. Yet, not any delegation of power is morally justified. Because powers are delegated with the ultimate view of enabling just judgment, or put a different way, states grant jurisdictional authority to international tribunals with the view that those tribunals will also possess decisional authority, an essential condition for the delegation of power is the procedural fairness of the court. Clearly, where a state is unable to call the wrongdoer to account by itself, it may delegate those powers to another national or international tribunal able to do so. In other circumstances, in deciding whether power are to be delegated, a state should bear in mind, and I'm not giving here a list of the considerations that it should bear in mind, but at least some things that I think are important. The importance of the role, its role, as a representative of the people. The role of the trial is to hold a, wrong, a wrongdoer to account and to punish him. The state may be best suited to communicate this message generated from its own people as the immediate representative of the people and being composed of its own people. It may be able to convey a focused and direct message of condemnation of that specific community. The fact that the trial is further conducted in the territory of that state means it is also able to convey a direct message to the victims and to the society at large, which can be easily accessed. One of the common problems that, that exist or one of the common claims that the, that the African countries have against the ICC is, you know, you're conducting, or the Sierra Leone court, you're conducting your justice somewhere else in a different continent. We don't know what happens. The people in all the villages have no access to what's going on. So having it in the place where things happen makes a huge difference because it's, it's accessible to the community and that has an important role. For those supporting a state-centered justification for punishment, these considerations may be decisive to prohibit delegation of power by the state where it is able to justly hold the wrongdoer to account and punish him. But even for if one does not agree with the state-centered justification of punishment, these are important considerations that ought to be taken into account when making the decision to delegate powers. It is worth noting that the idea of delegation of jurisdiction to other tribunals is not really foreign to state uh, practice. Indeed, it is a common legal practice. In the context of development of the domestic application of international criminal law, delegation of powers from one state to another through treaty agreements is very common. 
These treaties, which were created to improve international cooperation, require parties who have custody of an alleged wrongdoer to prosecute him if they cannot, cannot ex extradite the suspect to the state that has primary jurisdiction over the crime. The possibility of the state of custody to prosecute when it has no connection to the crime is best explained in terms of delegation of jurisdiction by the state with primary jurisdiction to the state who has custody of the wrongdoer. So what I've tried to show so far is just that there is no limitation in principle um, preventing the delegation of power. What I want to do in the second part is to examine whether we can justify or establish the authority of the ICC on delegation of powers. Now, if we accept the, that in principle there is no problem, can we, would we be able to ground the moral authority of the ICC on the basis of delegation of powers? Legally, the ICC gains jurisdiction over a person in a number of ways. By agreement of the state on whose territory the crime is committed, or of which the alleged perpetrator is a national, or when alleged crimes are referred to the prosecutor of the ICC by the Security Council. The agreement can be given um, in advance, a permanent agreement, by joining, becoming a party to the Rome Statute, or ad hoc after um, the event by, uh, by joining in um, the ICC retrospectively. Now, clearly, once we accept that there is no problem in principle that states for states to delegate the power to punish the international tribunal, then where the ICC's jurisdiction derives explicitly from states' agreement, the moral basis can follow clearly from that, right? Because they actually explicitly give the permission or delegate the power. The delegating state is legally permitted to delegate the power to punish, and in so far as its delegation is to a body that is that can provide high-quality just judgment, and here I'm assuming that the ICC can provide high-quality just, justice, it is also morally permitted to do so. The complementary nature of the ICC's jurisdiction further fits well even with state-centered justification for punishment, leaving the delegating state with, primary, with the primary duty to punish the wrongdoer where possible. So the ICC only steps in if it fails to do so. But what of cases where the court gains jurisdiction by, re by referral from the Security Council? Duff argues that these are cases that must be viewed as claims of independent universal jurisdiction. And as such, they cannot be reduced to claim of delegation of power. Duff is in good company in taking this stand. The US, as well as some other countries, take a similar approach when they claim that as a matter of law, um, the ICC may not exercise jurisdiction over nationals of non-parties without their consent. They even, during the second Bush administration, um, enacted the, the law permitting um, the U.S. Army to invade Hague um, if um, American soldiers will be um, trialed in front of the ICC. So, can prosecutions be based on referrals from the Security? Sorry. So, can prosecution based on referrals from the Security Council? be explained in terms of delegation of authority? I believe it can, based on indirect delegation of power. The general line of argument is based on the fact that all states are parties to the UN Charter, which sets out the Security Council and its powers. When the Security Council acts under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, it is exercising power delegated to it 
by the member states collectively. Decisions of the Security Council to refer a case to the prosecutor of the ICC are within the remit of the Security Council. These decisions constitute an example of the delegation of criminal jurisdiction by the states, in that case who had the primary jurisdiction, to the Security Council. It is therefore sufficient that the crime was committed on the territory of a state and or by a national of a state that is a member of the UN to enable the Security Council to decide to refer a case to the prosecutor of the ICC for investigation. Given the permanent nature of the delegation of powers, the state with primary jurisdiction on whose delegated power the Security Council's decision is based cannot unilaterally retract from the delegation from its delegation without withdrawal from the UN altogether. If this is correct and the legal basis for the ICC's jurisdiction, even in cases of referrals from the Security Council, is delegated power from states, then the moral basis too can and must be based on the delegation of powers and not on universal jurisdiction. Except that in cases that involve referrals by the Security Council, usually the state who has primary jurisdiction is opposing the idea of punishing the wrongdoer. Right? We've already noted that as a matter of law, it does not detract from the ability of the Security Council to refer a case on the basis of this delegated power. However, as a matter of morality, can we truly argue that the authority of the ICC is based on delegation of power where the state or states with primary jurisdiction clearly oppose this kind of delegation of power? When the state with primary jurisdiction opposes a Security Council decision it refers it to refer a case to the ICC, it may do so on one of the following reasons. It may occur when the wrongdoer acted in an official capacity and is therefore supported by his state of nationality. This position may take place in both interstate as well as intrastate armed conflicts. In interstate armed conflict, even if the state of nationality does not think the wrongdoer has acted wrongly, the state in whose territory the alleged crime has been committed also has primary jurisdiction. And it can be based, so the, the Security Council's decision can be based on, on the delegated power from the state of territoriality. But the offenses with which we are concerned are not limited to interstate armed conflicts and are similarly applicable in intrastate conflicts. Here, the country with nationality is also the country in whose territory the alleged crime took place. Think of Syria, right? It's both the, the Syrian army is committed crimes alleged crimes in Syria, right? So it's the same nationality and territoriality collapse into one. If the state supports the official wrongdoer, then those supporting the state-centered justification for punishment may argue that delegation cannot be based on, uh, cannot be a basis for the jurisdiction because the community with primary jurisdiction does not view the wrongdoer conduct as one deserving condemnation. The state doesn't want to punish. It supports the wrongdoer. Second, the state with primary jurisdiction may oppose the holding to account and the punishment of wrongdoers for some overriding interest. Once again, this would typically happen in intra-state conflicts. It, would be, um, it could be that an agreement not to punish is a basis for an agreement bringing a conflict to an end, where such an agreement with a dictator would be the basis for the removal of from power. For example, there were suggestions in Libya before um, he before the collapse of the Qaddafi regime that maybe they can reach some kind of agreement. Similar ideas were raised in the context of Yemen. Maybe we can reach some kind of agreement where the dictator will leave um, and, and we are not going to take him to trial. 
It could also be for other political reasons or where a society decided, possibly as part of a process of reconciliation, that it would be better to put the past to rest in order to allow for the various groups in society to move forward. In these circumstances, once again, it seems difficult to argue that the Security <coughs> Council and the ICC are representing the state, who clearly oppose it in condemning the wrongdoer and holding him to account for his actions. The answer to the challenge, I think, to grounding the moral um, basis for the of the Security Council's referrals and delegation of power in the face of clear opposition of states with primary jurisdiction lies in the failure of these states, the, the states with primary jurisdiction, to do that which they ought to do and which they recognize in principle that they ought to do. All the crimes that we are dealing with are crimes that have been recognized by customary law by all countries, by all states, and are important for the maintenance of international peace and security. When a state with primary jurisdiction joined the UN, it gave a general consent to delegate its power to the Security Council, knowing that the Security Council may act against it if it fails to uphold those principles. The Security Council intervenes when a state is unable or unwilling to hold ob its obligation and to act against those who have acted in a way that the state with primary jurisdiction have already agreed in principle to be wrong and deserving of condemnation. Moreover, when it comes to interstate conflicts where crimes have been committed by one group against another, the state's refusal to hold the wrongdoer to account means it refuses to condemn as a representative a conduct which is condemned by at least part or group that has been victims to those crimes within its own society. The Security Council, therefore, steps into the state's shoes with the state's own prior albeit general permission, because the permission to the, the delegation of power to the Security Council is a very general in, 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 in nature, and represents a victim. Presumably, this line of argument would mean that we should recognize one exception, where, the genocide, where a genocide has been so successful so as to kill all the members of that racial or ethnic group. In such circumstances, there is, no, there is no one left in the state whom the government has a duty to represent. They're gone. But it seems perverse to say that you know, in, in places where you've been so successful, you're going to get away just because of the success of your crime and you should benefit from your campaign. At the end of the day, and this is, this, this is the important bit, it should be remembered, if a state really intends to object to the Security Council's referral, then it has the right to withdraw its early general permission by abandoning the UN altogether. So it is power that is delegated, there is choice here. The ongoing membership in the UN is an ongoing validation of delegation of power to the Security Council. At any point, the state can remove itself from the UN, remove the delegation, undo the delegation of power. It chooses not to do so. It can argue more or less, but at the end of the day, it, will, it is willing, and it said it will be willing to accept the, U, the, the Security Council's decision. The failure of state with primary jurisdiction reasoning does, however, lead to to recognition of a different exception, where the state, acting as a true representative of, a, of its people, and I'm, I'm stressing here as a true representative, enters an agreement with the wrongdoer in order to bring the conflict to an end or for some other interest. 
If an agreement was reached by a body that can justly be regarded as representative of the people, then justice demands that the promise that has been given should be followed. In these circumstances, the state is not failing in its obligation to its people or to the international community. And therefore, the Security Council ought not intervene and refer a case to the prosecutor of the ICC. And the idea that it justly represents means that sometimes, you know, it's a decision between two regimes or two groups which are small, they don't represent, they do it for some personal interest, then it's not a true representation. But if you take, for example, in the 90s, South Africa, there was a decision not to um, put to trial all the old apartheid um, leadership. And this decision was actually the basis, it was part of the Constitution. It has been challenged in the Constitutional Court um, in South Africa, and the court says, look, this was a decision which was necessary in order to reach the end of the apartheid regime. It was agreed by people but who are true representatives of the various groups in um, South Africa, including the blacks in South Africa, and therefore it is a legitimate um, agreement that must be respected and claims that were made later on why those leaders of the apartheid regime should nevertheless stand to trial have been uh, rejected. Now, an alternative explanation for the way the delegation of powers works in cases involving referral from the Security Council can rely on a notion of universal jurisdiction. That individual states have as part of the internal application of international criminal law. To make this claim, it is first necessary to show that the moral grounds for universal jurisdiction, the, the moral grounds for universal jurisdiction but by individual states. Only if such moral grounds can be identified, we can move to the next sorry, to the next claim that states may delegate their universal jurisdiction through the Security Council to the ICC. So we're not looking the Security Council no longer works and the delegated power from states with primary jurisdiction, but actually from each of the other states, because they all have universal jurisdiction. However, if this is a basis for the ICC's juris jurisdiction and delegation of state-held universal jurisdiction, then really there is no need to go through the Security Council, right? Presumably, each of those states can delegate the power directly. Each state that is a party to the Rome Statute can delegate the power directly to the Security Council. But that does not fit well with the current structure of the ICC, which says the delegated powers directly from states can only follow states who had primary jurisdiction based on territoriality or nationality, active nationality principles. It would make this limitation unnecessary and unwarranted. Yet even if we choose not to go down this road of delegated universal jurisdiction power, and ground the ICC's jurisdiction on either direct or indirect delegation of territoriality or nationality-based jurisdiction, the discussion of the moral basis for universal jurisdiction is not made redundant altogether. Universal jurisdiction may still play an important role in the context of domestic application of international criminal law. And subsequently, a discussion of its moral foundation is needed. So I'm not arguing that no need for universal jurisdiction altogether. I'm just saying it's not necessary in order to create, to identify the moral authority of the international courts. So I think the moral authority of the international courts can and often is really based on delegation of powers. I think the ICC is a good example. That does not mean that it automatically is relevant to every international tribunal that has been or that will be established. 
But I think it's a good representative because the International Criminal Court is based on both sources, right, direct um, delegation of power by agreement and basis from the Security Council decision referrals. It can be a basis for a very wide range of other tribunals, an example for how delegation of power can base many other cases of authority, jurisdictional authority of international tribunals. Great. Thank you very much.